If you're an entrepreneur, you know what it means to take personal and financial risks, create jobs that support your community, and devote most of your time to your business. But do you know how to plan for a successful exit from your business? Do you know who should be involved in creating your succession or transition plan and the steps along the way? Welcome to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. The podcast theme is inspired by critically acclaimed business author, Bo Burlingham, author of Finish Big, how great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top. In this podcast, you'll hear success stories of exit plans done right and pick up practical tips based on years of legacy business advisors' expertise and knowledge about the largest and most important financial transaction of your life. Now, on to the show. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Finish Big Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Dorman, with Legacy Business Advisors, and today I've got a, a really good friend I've known for over 20 years, a gentleman by the name of Kelly O. Fennell. Kelly is the CEO and President of Executive Financial Services based in Memphis, Tennessee, and he is a, a rare breed. He is a professional who specializes exclusively in what is known as the Employee Stock Ownership plan or ESOP marketplace. In fact, Kelly is one of the nation's premier ESOP consultants, having spent more than 40 years helping business owners design, implement, and execute ESOPs. He's one of the most sought-after speakers about ESOPs all over the world, with experience presenting at numerous conferences in, uh, in the U.S. and abroad. He's also an accomplished writer. Kelly has wrote the preeminent ESOP book called The ESOP Coach, Using ESOPs in Ownership Succession Planning. That was written in 2010. And this work remains the most comprehensive guide to ESOPs today. In fact, we've handed it out to many of our clients in the Northeast Ohio market. In addition to that, Kelly has published dozens of articles on ESOPs in the ownership succession planning process. He's got over 40 years experience and has presented at over 300 conferences in meetings throughout the world. Kelly Fennell, my friend, welcome to Finish Big. Mark, thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. So let's just uh, dive in. So um, you've been in the industry for 40 years. I suspect knowing you and just knowing the industry and how it kind of takes us and turns us into different areas of specialization. How long have you been in the employee stock ownership plan space? Well, it's coming up on 41 years now. Uh, which is hard to believe, uh, but it's uh, it was only a part of my practice for the first 25 years. Uh, 15 years ago, it became our exclusive focus. So I've always been in the retirement plan world, uh, but for the first 25 years, that meant a variety of different types of retirement plans, focusing primarily on 401k plans. ESOPs were a very small part of our practice, back then. 15 years ago, I sold uh, my interest in the 401k business to my partner, who had been with me since the inception, so that I could focus exclusively on ESOPs. So for the last 15 years, that's all that we've done. Kelly, we've identified that ESOPs are really a niche within a niche for an advisor such as yourself, particularly a seasoned advisor. First, I would say that must have been a tremendous leap of faith just to say, hey, I'm going to get out of the 401k space and really 
dive into the deep end of ESOPs. But so walk us through what that was like to make that decision. You obviously saw a tremendous opportunity in the marketplace. And, and I applaud you because sometimes when you do a little bit of everything, the marketplace doesn't know exactly what you do. And when I travel around the country and I've seen you speak, there's no question that everyone knows what Kelly Fennell and Executive Financial does. But so walk us through what the decision was to be dedicated solely to the ESOP market. And then I want to explore who are the ideal candidates for ESOPs and who aren't. So take it from there. When I decided to go all in ESOPs, it was really almost a carrot and stick process. Uh, the carrot was that I just loved the ESOP work that we did. Uh, the plans are very intellectually challenging and the communication process to communicate in simple language to a business under these very complex concepts uh, is a challenge that I really enjoyed. And I think that's one of the things that makes my book unique is that it's the only book out there written about ESOPs in business owner language. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the carrot. I found the business fascinating and uh, very interesting. And I saw a great opportunity as a result of the aging of the baby boom generation. And there being a whole generation of business owners that were going to be looking to uh, liquefy their life's work, cash in uh, on their business and uh, transition that business to employees. So that was the, the carrot that I saw. The stick was I had just become incredibly bored with the 401k business. Uh, Congress had legislated it to the point where there was very little opportunity to add value through planning. Um, and the big mutual fund companies um, had dragged down fees and the opportunity for there to be a good profit in that business. So those two things together caused me to consider and then make the decision to go all in ESOPs. Mm -hmm. My timing wasn't great. I did that in uh, 2008 <laughs> and the Great Recession started uh, in September of that year. And we're in the business of doing leveraged ESOPs. Mm -hmm. And so most of our ESOPs include bank debt. Well, for you know, a, a year and a half period, banks weren't loaning money for any purpose, let alone something as esoteric as an ESOP loan. And so uh, my timing wasn't great, but we survived that first year and a half period. And in 2010, uh, started off the year with one of the biggest ESOPs that had been done that year. And so that was a very rewarding process and a sigh of relief that when we got started back, uh, we got started back in a big way. That's terrific. That's terrific. So 2008, you start not only are business owners not willing to talk about ESOPs or just trying to survive. Obviously, the banking markets and the credit markets really, really tightened up significantly. But when you look back and, and maybe just share with our audience here, uh, and we're with Kelly Fennell, who is an ESOP, uh, one of the you know net nationally known best ESOP consultants in the country. Kelly, tell us what types of businesses when business owners would be the perfect candidates for an employee stock ownership plan? Well, I think that there are two things that we look at. The first part uh, are the financial metrics. And so as a general rule, in order to be a good candidate for an ESOP, a company needs to have at least $2 million 
of adjusted EBITDA. So the company's adjusted cash flow needs to be at least $2 million. And as a general rule, the company needs to have at least 50 employees. So to flesh that out a little bit, over the last three years, we've done 25 ESOP transactions. And the largest company that we dealt with had 56 million in adjusted EBITDA. Wow. And the smallest company had 1.2. So the $2 million uh, adjusted EBITDA number is a rule of thumb. And as we all know, there are exceptions to every rule. And so we did do an ESOP for a much smaller company uh, that was based in Denver. Uh, the median size company that we dealt with over the last three years had an adjusted EBITDA of $4 million and had uh, an average number of employees was, was 100 employees. So is there any uh, industry specificity? Are there better industries for ESOPs and other industries that are not ideal candidates? Um, there are many industries that can benefit from an ESOP, but our primary focus has always been professional services. And so our biggest niche is engineering firms. We've done ESOPs for over a dozen engineering firms. We've also, in the last 18 months, developed a specialty in advertising and PR firms. We've done three of those in the last 18 months. And last week spoke at one of their national conventions in Chicago. We've worked with um, architectural firms, government lobbying type businesses. And so what you see that those companies have in common, those professional services firms, is that the success of their business is based on company culture. Mm. And business owners know that if they sell to a third party, even though the third party is going to tell them that after the acquisition, nothing is going to change. Nothing's going to change, Kelly, right? Yep. Everything is going to change. We're all adults. Mm. And we know that if somebody writes a check, they own us and we start doing business their way. And so... Uh, these types of companies where culture is the key to their success, they are really good candidates uh, for ESOPs. Understood. So but we're here sitting here in the Rust Belt in uh, Northeast Ohio in the Cleveland-Akron, Ohio market, as you know. And from some of the uh, research that I've done, Ohio leads the nation in ESOPs, but a lot of these are manufacturing companies. So that's not to say that manufacturing companies with the proper amount of size and scale with good culture, with very paternalistic ownership, they too could be good uh, candidates for ESOPs, correct? Yep, that's right. In fact, there are certain things about manufacturing companies that make them better candidates than service companies. And that's really focused on their borrowing capacity. Right, you got asset-based lending and things like that. There's more collateral for the banks to be had, correct? It's That's exactly right. Banks understand property, plant, and equipment and are more willing to lend against that than they are accounts receivable in goodwill. So for that reason, manufacturing companies can be really good candidates. There are geographical differences. I'm in the Southeast where we don't have that much manufacturing. We do business all over the country, uh, but our, our focus has been service businesses, but we are currently working with a company in Middle Tennessee that is a manufacturing business. And uh, we're about to finish up the feasibility analysis process with them 
and anticipate that they'll be implementing in the middle of the summer. Excellent. Excellent. So let's move on. So now that we've identified who are good candidates. So we said roughly on average, 2 million of EBITDA. Uh, service companies make a terrific fit, but they're not exclusive. So manufacturing companies work as well. But I know both sides of the aisle, so to speak, approve ESOP. So talk to us about the tax benefits for not only the business owners themselves, which I know are significant, but then the companies they exit. Yeah, there are three primary tax benefits. The first one for the business owners, as you mentioned. Under Section 1042 of the Code, which was added in 1983, a business owner can sell his or her company, receive the proceeds from that sale, reinvest in like-kind property, and not pay tax on the sale, on the gain from the sale to the ESOP. So 1042 is a like-kind exchange provision, and many of your listeners know about like-kind exchanges of real estate. You take a piece of commercial real estate, you sell it, you have a gain, you roll that gain over into another piece of commercial real estate. There's no tax on the first sale, but you do have a transferred tax basis in that second piece of property. And that's the same concept behind 1042. I own stock in a closely held company. I sell it. I reinvest that in the stocks or bonds of a U.S. domestic operating company. I don't pay tax on the sale to the ESOP, uh, but I do have a transferred basis in those stocks that I reinvested in. Mm -hmm. That is only available uh, for C-Corp sales. So if you sell S-Corp stock, that tax benefit's not available. There are business owners who are laser focused on the tax advantages of 1042. They currently operate as an S-Corp and we do see business owners revoke their S-election so that they can sell to an ESOP as a C-Corp and take advantage of 1042. As a general rule, they have to wait five years before the company can re-elect S. So that's the tax benefit for the selling shareholders. For uh, the companies, there are two tax benefits. One, the company gets a tax deduction for the contribution that it makes to the ESOP. So at its core, an ESOP is a qualified retirement plan like a 401k plan. And whenever a company makes a contribution to a qualified retirement plan, as long as it's within the IRS limitations, it gets a tax deduction for that. Even more important for the company is a tax benefit that's available for a 100% ESOP-owned S-corporation. That type of company has a, is in a very unique position. They don't pay any tax on the company's income after the ESOP has been implemented. No tax at the oh. shareholder level because it's an S-corp, which flows its earnings through to its owner. If its sole owner is a qualified retirement plan trust, the ESOP trust, then under the law, the earnings of that trust are tax exempt. So if you have a company that doesn't pay tax because it's an S, it flows its earnings through to its owner and its only owner is tax exempt, then you have Publix Supermarket, which is the largest company in the country, that is a 100% ESOP owned S corporation. And they we love Publix. We get down to the Florida panhandle and we love Publix. Yep. That's the place where I see them most frequently. Mm -hmm. um, and 
they do a great business. I was in there a couple of weeks ago when we were on vacation with the grandkids in the Florida Panhandle. And you have a very different experience than you do at Kroger because their employees are invested in the success of the company and the customer service is much better than most grocery stores. So a chain is as large as Publix, assuming they're a hundred percent ESOP company S corporation pays no federal or state income tax, no federal tax. And if Mm -hmm. the state does have a traditional income tax system, then no state income tax. There are a few states like mine in Tennessee, as well as in Texas, where there's not a state uh, corporate income tax, whether there's a franchise and excise tax. So you still have to pay the franchise and excise tax if you're in one of those few states that do that. But if your state has a traditional income tax, no tax, as you said, at the federal or state level. So Publix competes very well with Kroger and the other grocery stores because they've got a 40% pricing advantage. Well, not only that, they got 40% additional cash flow to reinvest in their business and grow their footprint, right? Yep, exactly. Wow, Wow, that's fascinating. So let's move on. Uh, One of the things I want to talk about is is if, if I had a candidate or another advisor, and this is the Finish Big Podcast, so we're here about succession planning and exit planning, ladies and gentlemen. Our guest today, Kelly Fennell with Executive Financial Services. He's one of the nation's leading ESOP experts based in Memphis, Tennessee. Walk us through the process because we know it is complex and hard to follow. From kind of soup to nuts, what might this look like from the business owner's perspective? We'd usually begin an engagement with a client with a conference call with the advisor who has referred us in. And we do those one or two calls without any fee. And our goal is to help the business owner determine whether or not an ESOP is a worthwhile strategy. And if based on those calls, they determine it is, then they engage us to perform a feasibility analysis. And in that analysis, we provide them the answers to all of the questions they're going to have in order to determine whether or not this is the right strategy. So those key questions are, if I sold to an ESOP, what would I expect the sales price to be? How much will be financed with bank debt, which will convert to cash at close? And how much will be in the form of seller debt? And what will the terms of that seller debt look like? The third question is corporate governance. How will the company operate after the ESOP transaction? And the fourth question is about stock appreciation rights. Mm -hmm. Most of our clients feel that all of their employees are important to their success, but that there are some employees that are absolutely key to their success and they want to do something extra for them. And they do that through stock appreciation rights. And so that feasibility analysis process is about four to six weeks. Uh, We have uh, three uh, Zoom calls with the clients to review uh, our reports. And then we deliver the final report in person, generally in a meeting with their key advisors. And at that point, they're, they they can make a decision about whether or not an ESOP is the right strategy. Hmm, interesting. That sounds pretty complex. And obviously, uh, executive financial services would charge a fee for that through the various stages. 
And at some points, there's going to be a fork in a row like, hey, this still makes sense for us, or you may not be quite the good candidate. But I'm sure if you work with exit planners like myself, you could have a good candidate that's not quite ready today. But if you said this is the direction we want to go, we either have to maybe improve our successor management team. We would have to improve our earnings and our cash flow and really focus on maybe adding to our bench strength. That's one of the things I see in my practice all the time. Kelly, can you comment on that? Yeah, you're right. Um, some of our clients just aren't ready yet. And so if they have an advisor who can help them prepare, then we have clients that come back to us three years later with a whole new uh, approach to operating their business because they've gotten advice from a professional like you, and now they are a good candidate. So yeah, the purpose of the feasibility study is to develop or is to determine whether or not someone is a good candidate. And if they're not, to uh, let them work with an advisor who can get them to the point where they will be a good candidate. Gotcha. Gotcha. But in this area, I've run into a couple of ESOP investment bankers. You identify as an ESOP consultant. What's the difference between the two and why would you, why would someone choose an ESOP consultant over an investment banker? You're right. Those are the two approaches that we see in the market. And so an ESOP investment banker would charge the same type of fee structure that a traditional non-ESOP investment banker would. So it's a percentage of the sales price. So when we compete with ESOP investment banking firms, our fees typically are about one quarter of what theirs would be because our fees are not based on the value of the stock that's sold to the ESOP. Our fees are based on an estimate of the time that we're going to invest in the project. So when we compete with those ESOP investment banking firms, we invariably win because we're going to provide at least as much service to them as our competition, and we're going to do it for about a quarter of the price. Hmm. Okay. And an ESOP investment banker, but you're still all networked in with uh, various, I'm sure, third-party administration firms that are going to do the record keeping on the, in, uh, the ESOP, the cash flows in and out, participant statements, et cetera. But then you've also got to be tied in with the banking community. There's going to be some banks have a greater appetite for financing ESOPs and others may have no appetite at all. So how big is the banking community in the ESOP space today as you know it? As part of our service, we prepare a, a financing request that we send to banks. And so we always send that to the company's incumbent bank. And we ask the business owner because every business owner has bankers who are calling on them trying to get their business. So once we know who those are, we send the financing request to them. But as you're suggesting, Mark, we also send it to the ESOP specialty banks. And there are probably a dozen of them around the country. Banks that have a department that specializes in doing ESOP financing. So that gives us a good cross-section of banks. We might send out a dozen financing requests for a particular transaction. And what we found is like uh, they say on the commercial, when banks compete, you win. <laughs> and so we're always hoping 
to have three or four finalists who we can pit against each other in order to make sure that we get our clients the best financing terms. Gotcha. But just because there's a bank involved, uh, and this is a question uh, that I know from my own experience, that doesn't mean it still doesn't preclude the owner, the exiting owner from having to sell or finance part of this deal. Can you touch on that? Yeah, we've never had a transaction where the owner sold 100% of their stock and was able to get bank financing for the entire thing. As you suggested, manufacturing companies can get more financing typically than service companies. So we did have one manufacturing company that was able to finance about 80%. Uh, of the purchase price because it did have property plant and equipment that it could use as collateral. More typically, uh, a bank is willing to finance uh, 30 or 40, maybe 50% uh, of the total sales price. And the Mm -hmm. rest, as you suggest, Mark, is financed with uh, seller debt. Mm -hmm. Now, when a business owner first hears about seller financing, they often react negatively to that. But when they hear about the terms of the seller financing, generally their attitude changes completely. So the seller financing is going to be subordinated to the bank debt. And as subordinated debt, it's entitled to a much higher rate of return. So if the bank debt is going to be at 7% interest, the return on the seller debt is probably going to be 14%. Wow. Wow. And, and, and the other added advantage there is they can maybe sleep a little, the business owner can sleep a little bit easier at night because they know that that company may not have to pay any tax. So there's additional cash flow in order to, to cover that, that, that debt ratio, correct? That's right. So yeah. with the tax subsidy, the company is effectively paying for about 60% of the financing and, Uncle Sam is paying for about 40% wow. of financing. So it gives a business owner a way to sell their companies without the comp- to their employees, without the employees having to finance it, and with the financing being done by the company with this huge tax subsidy. Gotcha. So uh, wrapping up here, uh, Kelly, give us uh, one of your you know most terrific tales from the trenches, so to speak, uh, where you got involved in the outcome and everyone won. Do you have a, a favorite case you can share with our audience? Yeah, um, we did uh, an ESOP for a defense contractor uh, in Huntsville, Alabama. And it was a, a very large, sophisticated, it was the most complex transaction that we had ever done. At the time of the transaction, this company had 1,200 employees, 200 of which had a PhD in engineering or physics. <laughs> so uh, a very smart group of technical people doing high-level defense work for the government. Ten years after they sold to an ESOP, this company was approached with an offer that they couldn't refuse. A big public company offered to buy them for $1.6 billion, with a B, At that point, the company had grown from 1,200 employees to over 2,000 employees. And when you take $1.6 billion and spread that among 2,200 employees, you have some very happy uh, people. I was talking to the uh, CEO of the company a few months after the sale, 
And I said, tell me about the best experience that came of this transaction. He said that they had had a very low paid employee who had been with them for a long time. Only job this gentleman had ever had. He'd worked for the company over 30 years. And he came into the CEO's office after they had had the meeting announcing all of this to the employees. And he said, you know, I still don't understand what this means to me. Mm. And so the CEO got on his computer and said, this means that uh, you're going to get a check uh, in a few months for over $4 million. Oh, my goodness gracious. So this was a gentleman who had never made, you know, $100,000 in his life. Holy and he cow. Was that kind of check. And he said, that means that my family will never have to worry about paying college tuition. Uh. He said, I'm going to establish a trust and we're going to be able to pay for the grandchildren and their children and their children's education forever. Wow. That's the kind of impact that an ESOP can have on family legacy and not just the legacy of the selling shareholders, but the legacy of their employees as well. And the community as well. So yes. Kelly, thank you so much. That is a, a great way to end this episode of Finish Big. Uh, our guest today has been Kelly O'Fennell. Kelly uh, is based in Memphis, Tennessee with Executive Financial Services. One of the nation's premier ESOP consultants. Spent over 40 years helping hundreds of businesses design and execute ESOPs. Kelly, how do I, how does our audience get a hold of you? Uh, my email address is kfin at execfin.com. So K-F-I-N at E-X-E-C-F-I-N.com. That's probably the best way uh, to reach me. Our website is uh, execfin.com. And so you can learn more about us there. Great, Kelly. Uh, thank you. And thank you to our listeners today. This is Mark Dorman, your host of the Finish Big podcast. And uh, here's to finishing big, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed listening to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes are available. Learn more at LegacyBusinessAdvisors.com or call 330-350-5410. Please be aware the information in these podcasts represent the views and opinions of our guests and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of legacy business advisors. The content is for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax or legal advice. Always seek the advice of your legal or tax professional with any questions regarding your specific situation.